Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Scripture reading today is Revelation 12, verses 10 through 12. Um, the text is up there. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. This is God's word. Please be seated. Morning, church. Uh, children are being dismissed for Children's Church. And a reminder to parents, pick them up right before, right after you take communion. If I've never met you before, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at uh, Trinity City Church. If you're just joining us today, as you heard, the scripture reading is from Revelation because that is the sermon series that we are in the midst of. We're going through uh, the entire book of Revelation that will take us to the middle part to end of June. After that, uh, as we do every summer, we pick uh, 10 psalms uh, from uh, the book of Psalms, and we'll go through our annual Summer of the Psalms series. I believe we're in 80s this year. We do 10 a year, and hopefully in, over the course of 15 years, we'll complete the psalms. But right now, we are leaning into uh, a very heavy, uh, difficult, confusing, exciting book of Revelation. It's one of those books that either folks really love to lean into it, others just want to avoid it uh, because it's so confusing. And we're, we're going through the book about a couple chapters uh, a week in order to try to give you a little bit more of a, an overview, especially the theology of the book of Revelation, because I think the details are overwhelming. Uh, even me, personally, I'm spending a little bit more time in the study and in the books and commentaries and just trying to unpack each one of these verses, especially because there's so much Old Testament background behind each one of these verses. And I know, and you're probably well aware, that people take different interpretations of the uh, book of Revelation, especially maybe when these events take place, whether they have taken place in the past, whether they're happening right now, whether they're taking place in the future. But regardless of the when, every Christian, when they read the book of Revelation, wants to apply it to the here and now. And these visions, kind of the, the point of this type of literature in the scripture is to unmask the things in front of us because sometimes the things of this world or in history or the things that we are uh, looking to in the future seem to be intimidating, seem to be overwhelming, may seem to maybe discourage your heart about whether God's plans are unfolding. But the visions of this book seek to unmask these things of the world in light of God's unfolding plan in Christ. And in this sense, every vision in the book of Revelation is for all times and for all people. A couple of the big sections that we just looked at it was a section about the seven seals, this vision of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, opening these seals that are wrapped around a scroll that's symbolizing the unfolding plan of God. And the theological theme in that vision is that the Lamb is carrying out God's sovereign plan, and no matter what Christians face, their souls are sealed in heaven. That was the point of that vision. Uh, we just got done with a couple of weeks looking at the, the seven trumpets and the theological theme there being that even when God's judgment comes, many people still do not repent. 
Yet we as God's people are called to keep bearing witness to the gospel no matter what we face. That's the theology that came out of that vision. And now over the next couple weeks, we have a new set of visions that deal with a cosmic and earthly battle that takes place. It's a, a one of the more uh, maybe visually intense and, and kind of like uh, uh, just overwhelming visions that you'll find in the book of Revelation. Some people call this the heart of, of the theology of the book. Uh, so in order to get into that, we better pray and calm our hearts before the Lord before we get into it. Let's pray. Lord, we face so many things in life, and we do need your word to unmask the things that are in front of us, powers that seem so overwhelming, things that we cannot overcome in our personal life and in this world, it seems, Lord, that often things are just coming undone in the world. But we know your word and, and your gospel promises peace. It promises forgiveness and, and the restoration of all things through the power of your grace. So help us, Lord, to unmask what is in front of us, the, the battles that we face, the, the, the war that we're in the midst of, the, the, the true war, Lord, in heaven and earth, and to help us to see our place in your plan in the midst of it all. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. So to open, I want you to imagine having this vision that John is, a, is about to have in the pages of these uh, uh, book, and then the book of Revelation, especially 12 and 13. And because I can't think of a better way to open a sermon by just trying to describe this vision, because it's intense. Just describe the vision without commentary and just try to picture this happening to John. Or to, yeah, to John. I don't know what John did if he just ate too much unleavened bread before he went to bed and, ate, and read Daniel 7 and just had this vivid, vivid vision. It'd be like you having a bunch of fiery hot Cheetos watching Lord of the Rings and you fell asleep and this is kind of what you dreamed about, okay? That's really like what this vision feels like. So this is the vision over these two chapters that John has. John sees a great sign in heaven, and that sign is a pregnant woman clothed with the splendor of sun, moon, and stars, and she's crying out in pain because she's about to give birth. And then another not-so-great sign appears, a dragon. This dragon is huge and red with seven heads, and each one of his heads has crowns on them, and he has ten horns. And he takes a swipe at the stars of heaven with his tail and flings a third of them to the earth. And after that little temper tantrum, he goes on to go after the pregnant woman, and more specifically, the son that she's about to give birth to. The dragon stands in front of her as she's giving birth in order to devour her son, who is said to rule all nations with power and authority. No wonder the dragon wants to eat the son. But the dragon doesn't succeed since the sun is taken up to heaven with God and the woman runs into the wilderness, a place prepared by God in order to be taken care of there for three and a half years. But then war breaks out into heaven. An archangel named Michael fights against the dragon and his demonic minions and the dragon isn't strong enough and he's hurled along with his minions to the earth. And now the dragon is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. He goes after the woman again, but she's given two wings of an eagle to fly away into the wilderness for protection. She is now out of the dragon's reach. The dragon, who is also called a serpent, spews water out of his mouth like a flood to take out this woman as she flees, but he's unsuccessful again because the earth opens up as an earthquake and swallows up the flood. Now the dragon cannot take out the woman or the son, so he goes off after the offspring of the woman, the siblings of this son. 
In order to do so, he calls forth a couple reinforcements. First, he calls a beast out of the sea, and this beast has ten horns with crowns on each horn and seven heads with one head having a fatal wound that is now healed. And if you looked at this beast, you'd see some type of mashup between a leopard, a bear, and a lion. This is a vicious, wild thing. The dragon gives his power and authority to this beast, and the beast performs such signs and wonders that people start worshiping the beast, singing songs of worship to the dragon and the beast. The beast is dissing God and slandering the name of the Lord, and the beast is also waging war against God's people, especially because they resist bowing to the dragon and the beast. And then there's a second beast. This one comes from the earth. This beast has two horns like a lamb, but has a voice like a dragon. This earth beast has all the authority that the sea beast has, and so he performs great signs and calls fire from heaven to rain down, and the earth beast uses this authority to get people to worship the sea beast by setting up an image and an idol of this beast. This beast makes the idol come alive, and anyone who refuses to worship the idol was killed. In fact, the beast forces such allegiance that every single person all over the world is required to have a mark on their hands or their forehead in order to even participate in society. And that's the vision. That's the vision that John sees. That's the vision that we are being brought into through God's word today. You have, again, the summary, the dragon cannot take out this woman or her son, and so he recruits a couple other wild things to go after the rest of the kids. They deceive many people and turn them away from God, but there are these stubborn folks in the vision who resist. These are the resistance that belongs to the Lamb of God who are sealed from heaven. And that's the vision. Or maybe if you look at it, maybe you think it's a nightmare, but that's the vision that John has. And it raises the question, what's the point of all that? How are we supposed to apply that to our lives today? And I think it raises the big question if you're caught up in this vision. Do you follow the dragon and his beasts, or are you part of God's resistance in Christ? And that's the main question that I think we're going to answer today by looking at this vision. Now, I described the vision. Let's provide some commentary to try to figure out what might be going on here. The pregnant woman represents God's faithful people who are clothed with God's glory, described as sun, moon, and stars, and have God's victory symbolized in the crown. The 12 stars on the crown, again, point to the number 12 and how it's symbolizing God's entire people, whether the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 apostles. And also in the Old Testament, especially the book of Isaiah, God's people are often described as a woman. Also in the Old Testament, dragons or sea monsters represent God's imagery or God's uh, enemies and imagery from the Psalms and Isaiah and Ezekiel. That's often how God's enemies are described. The seven heads with crowns and ten horns represent God or the dragon's claim of great power, and the imagery is intentionally deceptional. It's intentionally drawing from similar ways that Christ is described in the book of Revelation. And as we'll see, this dragon doesn't really have the power of Christ, even though he tries to present himself like he does. He is falsely trying to deceive others through a false power. The dragon or the serpent is identified in verse 9 of Revelation 12 as the great adversary of the devil. Verse 9 says, The great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, 
who leads the whole world astray. The dragon, as Satan, does not like God, his people, or his ways. When the dragon takes a swipe at one-third of the stars in heaven, this could be referencing either God's people or angels that are fallen. Either way, he's causing conflict in heaven. That's the point. And like the serpent in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, what he really wants is conflict with this woman and her offspring, especially the promised son who is going to crush the head of the serpent. No specific woman from the Old or New Testament is probably pictured here, but simply the truth that from God's people, the Messiah comes and the Messiah will be born. Revelation 12:5 quotes Psalm 10 to make this point. Verse 5 reads, She gave birth to a son, a male son, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child will be snatched up to God and to his throne. This son, of course, is Jesus Christ the King, who isn't defeated by Satan, but rather rises from the dead and ascends into heaven. He is snatched up by God to the throne. And through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, Satan is defeated. And this defeat is depicted as a war in heaven between Satan and Michael, the archangel, and he's hurled down to the earth. Since the dragon can't defeat the Messiah, he goes after God's people and this woman. Yet God protects her by bringing her into the wilderness. The wilderness, as well as the wings of the eagle that carry the woman there, recalls Old Testament imagery from something like Exodus 19.4 that says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You see, God is redeeming his people out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, and brings them under his care and protection in the wilderness. But here in Revelation, the dragon's lies and deceptions is still going after the woman. It's described as a flood But God opens the earth to swallow up the water like he did for God's people at the Red Sea in order to protect them and to bring them into the wilderness. I think that's such a powerful, by the way, a powerful description of lies and deception. I don't know if this has just happened to you in like a relationship that you've had that you've experienced the destructive power of lies and deceptions, but it seems very much like a flood and how just, just, just how it wrecks so many things in life. And, and if you want a very vivid picture of this, just go down to the Mississippi River right now. Go over to, to St. Croix, Stillwater, that area, and you could see the floods that are swelling up in spring. And that is a picture of the destruction of lies and deceptions wherever they come from. That's, the, that's why the woman, <clears throat> God's people, are called into the wilderness The wilderness, and she's called there for 1,260 days, which is 42 months or three and a half years, which is half a Sabbath rest. This period of time in Revelation is referenced many times, and it's a time for proclaiming the gospel or it's a time of persecution. Uh, The point of bringing up this time is that God protects his people during times of persecution. And it's worth remembering that the wilderness is not the promised land. The story, the arc of Revelation ends in the promised land. It ends in a new Jerusalem. It ends in a new Eden, a new garden. But they're not there yet. They're in the wilderness, which is really is a place of protection, but it still is a place of, 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 of being tested, a place of perseverance as well. It actually makes me think about wildernesses in general. They kind of have both things going on when you're called into the wilderness. Say you're going on a trip to the Boundary Waters, 
Uh, you have a little bit of both, right? You have a place where you can unplug from work and technology. You can enjoy creation and a place of beauty and quiet. On the other hand, it's a difficult little vacation, isn't it? You're rowing a canoe all day, you're fighting mosquitoes, and you're sleeping in a tent. I know me personally, when I was younger, I didn't mind this sort of thing. I worked at a camp for three summers straight. I slept on a picnic table underneath the stars during those three summers. That was great. That would break me in half now as a 40-year-old, right? Right now, if I'm looking about uh, having some time in the wilderness, I'm thinking cabin with AC, right, a hot shower. That's more of my speed. Right? And I think that's what the wilderness is. It is really a place of beauty, rest, and protection in, in theological terms. But it still is a place of testing, of temptation, a place to call, that you're called to persevere in. Because we are in the wilderness, yes, but we're not in the promised land yet. That's what we're seeing here. And so, too, in the scriptures, the wilderness is described this way. We're protected yet called to persevere. This is what the song sings in Revelation 12, 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumph over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. You see, in Christ, we triumph over the dragon. There is now no condemnation for God's people because of the sacrifice of Christ and his blood sets us free, and now that's the, pre that's the gospel that we preach to the nations. Our life in Christ is so precious that even if we are faced with death, we do not shrink back. That's what this song celebrates. And that is the tension. The heavenly perspective on Christians is that we're kept safe in Christ and have everlasting life, and even death cannot take that away. Yet, yet, in this world, you will face troubles. In this world, you will face difficulties. So how do we face these things, knowing that we're protected where it matters in Christ? And this answer, the question, rather, is answered within the context of now the dragon calling forth his reinforcements. So in Revelation, it goes on, this, the vision goes on, and something is called out from the sea. Throughout the book of Revelation, the sea symbolizes chaos and evil. And it's the same place, also called the abyss, where Satan comes from. And out of this sea comes a beast with ten horns, with crowns on each, with crowns on each horn, and seven heads. One of these heads has a fatal wound that has been healed. And again, these are depictions that are also ways that Christ is described in the book of Revelation. Horns and crowns and the one who is slain. See, the beast is deceptively appearing to be sovereign like Christ, but it's only a blasphemous projection. The beast is an antichrist. The beast is also described as appearing like a leopard, a bear, a lion, which is imagery taken from the book of Daniel 7. I won't read all of Daniel 7, but Daniel 7 is very dominant behind this vision, which is why I, go, I joked at the very beginning that that might have been something that, uh, that John read before he had this vision. If you read Daniel 7 and the vision in Daniel 7, these animals, the leopard, bear, lion, represent evil kingdoms that are opposed to God and his people. And this Old Testament background, along with the detail that the dragon has given his authority to the beast, means that the beast represents how Satan uses the powers of this world 
for evil purposes. So what does this look like? What does it look like for the beast to use this evil power in this world? It describes it in the text, the vision. The beast wants to point allegiance back towards him and the dragon, to Satan. All his power is used to gain worship from others and to take it away from God. He slanders and blasphemes God and wages war against anyone who will not worship him or the dragon. People from every area of the world who are not protected in Christ see this power and they, and, and they work to give their devotion to this evil, even singing a song in this vision that says, who is like the beast and who can wage war against him, praising the beast. So Satan is using the beast of power to get others to turn to him in devotion. The power, throughout, the power is described throughout Revelation as military might or the power of political and economic pressure, the power of shame and mockery, are all used to demand allegiance. And these are things that Christians face, do we not? In every age and the ages to come, this is something that we face. But it's important to realize that the true enemy in this battle is not other human beings that are caught up in these lies. All human beings bear the image of God, and it's heartbreaking, and our hearts are to break with Christ when we see humanity swept up into these lies and into this evil power. We are reminded in Ephesians 6, 11 through 12, for example, to put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, that's against other human beings, but against the rulers, against the authority, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And if you ever wondered what does that look like, this is a vision that describes what that battle against these spiritual powers looks like. So we're going to keep that in mind as we are now introduced to the second beast. This is the third member of this unholy trinity in this vision, the beast who emerges from the earth. That this beast is coming out of the earth is again drawing imagery from Daniel 7 where four kings emerge from the earth. And this beast continues the theme of mimicking Christ falsely. This time the beast has horns and looks like a lamb, but when he speaks he sounds like a what? A dragon. This is a dragon in lamb's clothing. If the sea beast is all about power, then the land beast is all about propaganda. It performs great signs by even calling fire down from heaven. Its goal is deception, which is why the beast is called later in the book of Revelation a false prophet. This beastly false prophet sets up an idol to point back to the other beast who points back to the dragon. Again, they're demanding allegiance and worship. The land beast makes the image seem to come alive, this idol come alive, and commands everybody to either worship this idol or be killed. And not only is their life threatened if they refuse to worship, but the text says that those who don't give allegiance cannot even buy or sell anything. They can't participate in society. And with Daniel in the book background, the book of Daniel in the background, you can't help at this point in the vision think about the three God's people that were faced with worshiping the idol set up for Nebuchadnezzar, and they refuse to bow the knee to that idol and end up in the fiery furnace where what? God protects them from the fires and saves them in that moment. Because God's people are not to be marked by false worship. Going back to the book of Revelation in this vision, we see a picture of others embracing the mark of the beast. 
They're okay with that, and this is something that's, that's hotly debated in the book of Revelation, the mark of the beast. Maybe if you've never read the book of Revelation, that's something that you have heard of before. It's described in Revelation 13, 16 through 17. It also forced all people, <clears throat> great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom, that the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. So as I said, there's some debate about what this means. I can't offer every interpretation, but the way that I would describe it is remember that in the book of Revelation, uh, uh, numbers carry a lot of symbolic and theological meaning. Number seven, for example, is used throughout the book of Revelation to mean completion or perfection. So six, then, would be imperfection, and 666 is imperfection times three. That's the theology behind this number. But who is the man who is a man who bears this number? And since the verse doesn't say the man, it leaves room for this generic a man, and I understand that to mean that it's referring to fallen humanity in general. That is, anyone throughout history who gets caught up in the power and propaganda of the beast and rejects God and his people and his world, that's those that bear this mark. For others to receive this mark on their forehead and hands, that's the description that they get the mark on their forehead, forehead and hands, that's drawing Old Testament language from the book of Revelation or book of Exodus, rather. Exodus 13.9 says, This observance, this observance of eating unleavened bread, will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the, law brought, the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. So the point of where this is placed is to say that if something's placed on your forehead and your hand, that it demands your ultimate allegiance your entire life, your ultimate devotions, all of your thoughts and the hand, all of your actions. And it's funny, as I was thinking about this, I don't know if you've been seeing this thing poke out of my, uh, my uh, suit coat here a little bit, but I got something on my hand here. And uh, for parents that are really uh, engaged in your kid's athletic life, this is a AAU bracelet uh, that I have on. So that's club sports. And I thought, like, yeah, it's kind of like that. Like club sports is another one of those things that demands all your money. All your weekends, all your weeknights, right? It demands a lot from you, right? And they even give you a bracelet to remind you who's in charge. That's club sports in a nutshell if you're thinking about doing that, okay? In a more sinister way, that's what's going on here. The mark of the beast means everything that's imperfect and unholy. And there are real evil powers in this world, in the past, present, and in the future, that want to call us away from devotion to God to being committed to the beast and his dragon. That's what the goal is. And that's why the text, if you noticed, calls for wisdom. Did you see that in verse 18? This calls for wisdom. God's people are to be wise. This mark is of 666 is in contrast with those who are marked by the blood of the Lamb and sealed in heaven by his grace. And that's why we are called to be wise, because we are not marked with this. We are marked by the blood of the Lamb. And so the charge to us is do not be deceived. 
Not everybody who claims to have a message from God or a message of justice or a cause to devote your life to is something that's worth pursuing. Test every person, brothers and sisters. Test every cause. Test every pursuit. Is this the Lord's voice behind this cause or is it the propaganda of the beast? Any voice that calls us to pursue something that's not all about bringing us back to Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, and his purposes of peace is not worth a Christian's alliance. Our allegiance is to Christ and the slain lamb alone and only to him. And not only are Christians called to have wisdom in every age, but Revelation 13, 9 says this, Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the, sword, by the, with the sword, they will be killed. And here's the call. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. This vision is calling Christians for patient endurance and faithfulness in every age, past, present, and future, whatever is to come, whatever you face right now, your call, Christian, is to face these evil powers with patient endurance and faithfulness. So what does that look like? The language there of being going into captivity, being killed with the sword, it's calling, it's drawing Old Testament imagery from the book of Jeremiah. And he's describing essentially this image of not compromising. Christians are not to compromise. And what does compromising look like? Compromising as a Christian means that you use the same techniques as the dragon to try to defeat the dragon. But that's not what we use. Christians aren't using darkness to defeat darkness. We are called to defeat darkness with light. That's our call. Christians don't respond to unrighteousness, violence, lies, or persecution by using the same techniques to fight back against those things. Rather, we're called as Christians to stand firm, drawing imagery from Ephesians 6, wearing all of the armor of God. You want to fight against unrighteousness, violence, lies, and persecution? You do that by putting on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the prayer in the spirit. That's how we fight back. We don't fight the powers of darkness with techniques of darkness. We dispel the darkness with the light of Christ. Amen, church? And so what are you thinking? You might be thinking right now, like, what would that look like? And I wanted to close this message by trying to draw out an application of how do Christians throughout the ages fight back the lies, the schemes, the unrighteousness of the dragon and his beast. How do we do that? What does it look like to put on the breastplate of righteousness to fight back? And there are so many things you can draw from church history to imagine what this could look like in your historical moment and what it may look like when history is all drawn up. I wanted to go to an illustration. I remember, uh, I think, using this story back on the uh, sermon series on the book of Amos. And it comes from the civil rights era. And there are a lot of stories from this era, era of uh, Christians using light to dispel the darkness. And this is one concerning Martin Luther King Jr. And the setting of this story is that a bomb explodes on the front porch of his parsonage. He's not there. He has to come home. And by the time he comes home, there's a crowd 
that's forming on the front lawn and on the street in front of his parsonage. Tensions are arising between the different groups that are there to check things out, and they were getting hot well before MLK arrived. The author of the book that I'm drawing this story from describes how, how a few days later, King caught a glimpse of Christ in his kitchen and heard a calling to his purposes. And it's to this scene that, that MLK, Martin Luther King Jr., believed that he was a man inwardly prepared for battle. That's a quote from the book. That going into this situation, he was prepared for battle. But the way that he is going to battle this injustice looks very different than how the dragon and the beast battle things. He's going to face this evil with the strength that he finds in Christ, who is a greater power. So he goes and checks on his family, like any father would do, and he sees that his family was unharmed by this explosion. And then he said from a blown-up front porch to the hostile crowd that was forming there, and this is a quote from the book Beloved Community, it says, Let, let's not become panicky. This is MLK saying this. If you have weapons, take them home. If you do not have them, please do not seek to get them. We cannot solve this problem through retaliatory violence. We must meet violence with nonviolence. Remember the words of Jesus. He who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. Remember, that is what God said. We must make our enemies know that we love them. Jesus still cries out in the words that echo across the centuries, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that they that they, even though they despitefully use you. That is what we must live by. We must meet hate with love. And remember, if I am stopped, this movement will not stop because God is with this movement. Go home with the glowing, this glowing faith and radiant assurance. Go home and sleep calm. Go home and do not worry. Be calm as I and my family are. We are not hurt. And remember that if anything happens to me, there will be others to take my place. That is how you overcome evil with good. That is how we triumph over the dragon and his beasts until Christ's final victory in the end of days.